Hello and welcome to Leading with Purpose. I'm your host, Dennis Morton, founder and principal of Morton Brown Family Wealth. In today's conversation, we're going to explore business transactions from a financial perspective, that of the buyer, the seller, and maybe the entrepreneur who isn't sure. The owners of middle market companies, those with revenues between $2 million and $75 million, are facing some challenges and opportunities. The market for mergers and acquisitions is extremely active, with liquidity abundant and strategic buyers poking around in many industries. Valuations for attractive companies are strong, but not every business is ready for a successful sale or acquisition. In this episode, we're going to learn about the financial preparation that helps bring a deal to fruition, the catalysts that are bringing buyers and sellers to the table, and why so many business owners wait too long to start their own planning process. When the stakes are this high, the planning that goes into a successful deal can offer us all lessons on how to approach financial decision-making. On this podcast, I interview a spectrum of entrepreneurs and thinkers to learn principles of leadership, and my goal is to help you use these ideas to make more confident decisions in your profession and in your community. I've always enjoyed my conversations with today's guest, Bob McCormick, founder and managing partner of Murphy McCormick Capital Advisors. Murphy McCormick Capital Advisors is a business advisory service company specializing in sell-side advisory, buy-side advisory, business valuations, financing placement, and highly selective business turnaround advisory services. The middle market companies they serve are in Pennsylvania and throughout the Mid-Atlantic. Bob founded Murphy McCormick Capital Advisors in 2005 after a successful career in financial services. He's the former president and chief executive officer of SunBank, a regional financial services company with more than $1 billion in assets. As CEO, he negotiated and implemented numerous acquisitions. With more than 25 years of financial services experience, Bob also has extensive financing expertise and contacts. As a former head of commercial lending and as a former commercial loan relationship manager, Bob witnessed firsthand the need in the market for professional merger and acquisition services and transition planning assistance, particularly with privately held middle market companies. This led him to establish Murphy McCormick Capital Advisors. Bob is a certified valuation analyst, merger and acquisition master intermediary, and a certified business intermediary. Bob is also past chair of M&A Source, the National M&A Association. Bob, welcome to the podcast, and thanks for joining me. I'm glad to be here, Dennis. I enjoy listening to your podcast in the past as well. Thanks for being here, and I'll start with my favorite part of anyone's career story, which is the middle. Uh, You've been, been a banker for years before committing to this space by founding Murphy McCormick. What challenge were you trying to resolve in doing so, and how has that changed from then till now? I enjoyed the M&A side when I was CEO of SunBank. We, we did nine acquisitions and, and ultimately the sale, and that was enjoyable. But the one thing I saw in the marketplace was a, a tremendous need for, in the closely held business sector, primarily with, you mentioned, between 2 and $75 million in revenue. Uh, often they would get engaged by somebody that came in and said, we'll, we'll sell your business for some crazy number, pay a big upfront fee, and never see them again. And likewise, we saw many business owners that didn't do the financial planning to get ready for the sale, or they, uh, you know, the unfortunate event, they passed away or had an illness, uh, and then they weren't prepared as well. So um, I, 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 as a commercial lender, would often, and a bank CEO, would try to refer clients to people in the marketplace, and there were a few in the marketplace, to, to provide that service. Our trust department would try to f- solve that need, and they weren't really skilled to do that. And uh, so I saw a need and an opportunity in the marketplace and uh, 
really wanted to fulfill that need. The other thing that happened right at the, we closed September 30th, 2004 in the sale. October 1st, a local economic development group came to us and asked us to buy Pennsylvania House from Lazy Boy. And uh, we saw that as an opportunity. That's really kind of got the firm started at that point. How are the conditions different in 2021? A little bit of a conversation before we got on live here today. The, the pace of things has picked up so much. What What are you seeing right now in the, the financial transactions across your desk? Dennis, you're, you nailed it. And I think you're seeing it in your, your practice too, is the, the level of activity is tremendous. There's $3 trillion in private equity money available in the marketplace. And uh, they're rather aggressive in their marketing efforts. To the closely held business owner, they're coming down to do smaller deals than they ever did. And then the senior lenders, the commercial bankers, are also seeking to finance acquisitions more than they ever did. We're seeing a lot more ESOP financing, employee stock ownership plans being financed by banks, and uh, just a general ton of liquidity out there in the marketplace. I think two other pieces of this, or uh, additional pieces, is one, concerns over the tax rate change. Mm-hmm. is affecting many of these business owners. They uh, they maybe missed the cycle of 2007-8 when we had the last big recession. Concerned about rising interest rates, inflation, you know, labor pool challenges, supply chain challenges, and then you couple that with a capital gains tax potential change and where you might move from a 20-25% capital gains tax to a 40% capital gains tax. That's scaring a lot of business owners to come to market right now, trying to sell by fiscal year in 2021. That's such a contrast to the great financial crisis when coming out of that, you had banks that were really licking their wounds. There was not a lot of lending happening. They weren't well capitalized. And But here you've got the, the banks in a really good position to provide that financing. They are. They're disciplined yet, which I'm grateful because I'm a shareholder of a number of banks. But they're uh, more lending on cash flow than just lending on collateral. And, and Functionally, cash flow is what repays the loan, not collateral. The mistake they made in early 2000s leading up to the last recession, they were lending on appraised values and not on cash flow. Mm-hmm. I think they kind of learned their lesson and lo- looking to do uh, financing on good good quality credits out there. From a business owner's perspective, in our world, we use the acronym FOMO, fear of missing out, mm-hmm. that, that investors sometimes you, you know, will dive into buying and selling of, of securities because they're worried that they're going to miss out on the next thing. Do you get a sense of fear of missing out from some business owners? Hey, I better get out while the getting is good now? Those that had a good uh, COVID bump or had a good year because of COVID and that trend's continuing. So if you're in a consumer brand manufacturing company that uh, did well during COVID, they're certainly really being aggressive and looking to pursue the marketplace. The other hand, if you were in the hospitality business, maybe now's not the right time to get out, uh, maybe fix things and, and uh, look at a later point when trends are going the positive direction. But those that did well during COVID and are still doing well and have positive trends and maybe are in that retirement age bracket are certainly looking at uh, succession planning. Uh, right now. And and I think the other part was my second point I was going to make is people like you, Dennis, and firms like you that know how to do financial planning, help prepare a business owner for sale on the personal end, on the, you know, talking about personal financial, but also the emotional part of that as well, are helping prepare them in, uh, prior to this kind of boom in liquidity. You bring up a good point on the financial planning side, because you and I have, have talked before about um, sometimes that planning process doesn't start early enough, or it's not something that's been ongoing. It's really, it, it occurs simultaneous to a lot of the transactions. And that, that's a lot of juggling for a business owner. 
So when the phone rings for you right now and somebody says, I'm thinking about a transaction or a buyer's knocking on the door, what's the status of that owner? What's their financial condition? Where does their business sit? How much do they have to put into preparing for a transaction? Uh, it is, it's a significant amount preparing for a transaction on the business end. And we find many are not prepared at all. Uh, they're used to maybe, you know, they get a call from a potential buyer and they'll send their tax returns and financial statements to the buyer and expect to get an LOI back or an offer back. Often that's, you know, the horse is out of the barn at that point and stuff to get it back in and try to present the company in a better fashion. They're not used to the 60 page due diligence list that's going to come from uh, the attorneys and the CPAs. So really not prepared on the business end of it. I don't understand the tax implications of an asset sale versus a stock sale, all the nuances of working capital, those type of things in a transaction. But probably the biggest worry I often have, and that's, you know, again, how we connected Dennis, is they aren't prepared personally. They don't know what they need to live on post-closing, after taxes. They don't know what their, uh, how to maintain their lifestyle. You know, I haven't thought of things about like around life insurance or, or even uh, long-term care insurance or things along those lines. Mm-hmm. Really no personal financial plan. All the life insurance with someplace. Right. Their investments on Ameritrade spread out all over the place. And uh, really no concept of trying to tie the business value and net proceeds from the business transaction to their future personal life and uh, maintaining that quality of life. Yeah, there's a lot that goes into that. There's a lot of uh, psychology that flows into that. There's a, uh, there's an identity that's tied up into the business, and and a lot of that it, it's sticking the landing is challenging. But you you actually in your educational background, you, you mentioned to me before that you were a little bit prepared for some of the psychology that goes into this. So tell me about your academic background and how that fed in. Yeah, so my uh, I had a minor in psychology, and uh, and I hate to admit the intent why I took a minor in psychology was my future wife was majoring in psychology and we were not formally dating at that point, but getting close to dating. So it was a, it was a marketing effort on my part, probably early in the, early in the process. But I tell you what, my academic background is mostly accounting. Uh, I'm a CPA prior to being a, a commercial banker and investment banker. And those finance values really do add value to our clients and to myself. But uh, often, you know, I can price a bank in 10 seconds mm-hmm. on the valuation. It's 98% non-financial. So you think about the local community bank getting sold. It's going to be who's on the board of directors, who's going to be CEO, whose name's going to be in the front door. A lot less things that matter financially. In a closely held business, it's often, what am I going to do post-closing? Or literally 10 minutes ago, I had a client call just an event. You know, he's getting worn out in the process, worn out with the buyer. He's ready to close. But he, uh, he has nowhere to go. So I, yeah, I'm, I'm available to be his uh, punching bag, so to speak. And uh, it's okay. And I, uh, most business owners, CEOs, don't have a place to, you know, someone else to talk to unless they're part of Vistage or something like that. Actually, that's, that's something that I wanted to touch on as well. The professional group that you surround yourself with. You and I occupy different chairs around the table in consulting with business owners. Who, el- who else is in that room? If someone is, is thinking, all right, I, I trust my accountant, but I know there's other people that need to be around the table to help me do this properly. Who do you work best with? Uh, we work best with when there's a good M&A attorney involved. Uh, your local state attorney or the person that did your will probably is not the right person. Mm-hmm. But a good M&A attorney is very valuable, and they're not, you're not going to waste legal fees on non-negotiable points in the first place, but be able to head off issues early on. 
uh, a firm like yours, Dennis, is cr absolutely critical for, for most middle market, lower middle market business owners to be working with. We like having a good business coach involved. Mm -hmm. There's two or three in Pennsylvania we really like, and we try to get them involved. And I tell you what, the outcomes are tremendous. We, we sometimes see three or four fold increases in value over time with working with a good business coach. And if we have time to work with a client, say it's four or five or six years, uh, you, you think about working with a firm like yours, you're doing personal financial planning piece, the corporate financial planning piece, the tax minimization plans, potentially using, you know, maybe uh, deferred uh, cash payments or things along those pension plans, things along those lines, those get added back in evaluation. So it doesn't hurt and saves them or defers taxes. And then the coach is working with them at the same breath to help deal with the business risk along with us, attorney and the CPA, where the outcomes are so much better when somebody plans well in advance. And so having a deal team is critical in the, in the process. I'm glad you brought up both people and timeline. The thing I was going to ask you is if someone's saying, all right, this isn't me, I'm not ready to, to go now, I'm, I may be 10 years out. What are the things that a business owner uh, who has eyes on you know, a liquidity event down the line can do 10 years out to start putting themselves in a good position? Well, there's certainly, um, you know, there's company specific risk type issues that are, are typical in most deals, things like depth of leadership, uh, financial reporting. Uh, we often get a quality of earnings done before we go to market. That identifies many risks in the business that can be mitigated. Tax planning goes a long way. Literally, I just had somebody in this morning that was a C Corp. And you got the double taxation issue with the C Corp and an asset sale. So you're looking at a 50% tax rate there at that point. We've had business owners that, you know, are able to build some leadership into the company. And COVID was a great example. They were able to domicile in Florida and save a little bit on personal taxes when the sale transaction took place too. You got 10 years to plan something like that. That, that does work. You know, doing it in July for August sale, that doesn't quite work. Yeah. Long-term planning really does pay dividends for business owners. So. There's that long-term perspective. Then there are shorter-term people, the ones who are saying, you know what, uh, as one of my clients told me the other day, uh, I used to have a three- to five-year plan. Now, now it's a hurry-up-and-get-out-now mm -hmm. plan. So for people who are, who are accelerating things, how are you talking them through potential tax law changes or just different policies, the things that are outside of their control? Just the environment might be changing toward the tail end of this year, heading into 2022. Um, what's your outlook there, and how are you coaching clients through that? Yeah, we're getting an awful lot of that right now. And people that want to close by 1231, uh, 2021, which we're probably hitting a window here with the next 30 days that they're going to miss that opportunity. Mm -hmm. So we're working, we're, we're running through scenario analysis. And I know you do the same thing. Uh, so we're running through analysis of, of a transaction happening this year, what needs to happen to make it happen this year, the taxes at the current taxing rates, uh, most likely deal structures. And then likewise, we'll go uh, and do some scenario analysis if the capital gains rate does go to 40% uh, and some of that type of analysis and really kind of doing net present value analysis based off the risk. And, it, you know, it's a critical thing to do. Sometimes people coming to us now, we may be saying you're really not ready to sell. Mm. You might need to wait three to five years. And even if capital gains rates go up, you're going to have to improve your valuation to get the same net number. But you, there's things you've got to work on to get to that, that higher higher valuation number too. Right. So it's, you got to be honest with them right up front. If you're client-centered and focus on the best outcome for them, as hard as it may be say, say, you may miss out on the lower capital gains tax rate, but you're just not ready to get the best value. 
I'm sure that the the mentality of the clients that you work with has changed a lot just in the last few years. Um, you know, COVID probably had a dramatic impact on, on how they were thinking about their own longevity. What's changed in their mindset over the last 12 to 18 months? And how they see themselves and their 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 role in the business and just the, the longevity of the business itself. I, I think we've we've seen a fair amount of nervousness over there. You, all, all, all business owners think they're going to live forever. It just seems like it's built into the entrepreneurial gene. I think COVID really changed that to some degree, both from a living forever perspective, but more so on the disability issue mm-hmm. uh, and having a lack of depth of leadership in the company. A lot of us at the beginning, including myself, at the beginning of the COVID, you know, when it was started to bubble up in January and February of last year and early March, you know, I pulled out my contingency plan. We're required to have one. I did one in probably January 2005. I probably didn't look at it till last year. And uh, many business owners we found didn't have one at all. So, you know, it, it, it's interesting. We're seeing the same thing with cybersecurity risk right now with some business owners. And the fear were cybersecurity problems that never had a cybersecurity risk plan or insurance for that matter. So they, they went back and were worried, not if they passed away or got beamed up, but their worry was more if I'm disabled, what happens to my business while I'm not here? And you think about it, if you're in a ventilator in a hospital for three weeks, and you don't have a plan to run your business. A lot of bad things could happen in those three weeks that have a long-term negative impact. And that's, I think, brought more and more people to the table this year. And I hope they're also taking, not just coming to us for the exit plan or succession plan. I hope they're coming to people like you and others or to a, a, a business coach. Help me build a plan uh, to mitigate some of these risks, too. There's no guarantee they're going to sell their business. They should have a plan in place either way. Right. So you have the, the key person, uh, the, the owner, the entrepreneur. How are they doing in terms of internal succession? Is that typically an option? Do they do they have people, or are they going to strategic buyers or, or private equity because there is no internal succession plan? Uh, ideally, even going to private equity, you want a key leader behind the leader in that company. It, it increases the valuation of the business. It allows the owner to exit or retire or do something other in life. So we coach our clients. You know, quality of life will be better if you have a some key people behind you and depth in your team. Business owners don't always listen, uh, as you know. And uh, even without a succession, they're coming to us with, we have nobody, which means they're going to have to stay with the business a little bit longer post-closing. We usually take the approach when we start an engagement is, have you looked at selling to family? Have you looked at selling to key employees? Have you looked at ESOP alternatives? We want to make sure we explore all those alternatives and help them find a way to get the deal done. Half my team's ex-commercial bankers, so we know how to do management buyouts. So we do a lot of management buyouts. Mm -hmm. We get the financing arranged for management buyouts. And we do a couple of ESOPs every year, too. You know, I'm on a board of a sixth-generation lumber company. Uh, So it's it's fun being on the board of a company of six generations and and still thriving and surviving all the bumps in the road out there. Uh, and there's many businesses probably if they plan better, they could they could have succession to their their key employees or others as well. Well, six, six generations that's a unicorn. It is, yeah. There's a few of them. If you had to distill what's gotten them there through all of that transition, what what could they bottle up and sell to a first or second generation entrepreneur? That's the the secret sauce of making that work. I think there's there's 
two or three things. The, probably the, the biggest one is their mission. They're um, kind of overt in their faith-based organization, and they believe making profits helps from a faith perspective, so they're not afraid to be profitable, mm-hmm. and helps lead their um, some of their faith initiatives. But uh, uh, focus on family, and they consider their employees. They truly do think of their employees as family, so they're a partial lease up about 30%. Mm-hmm. And they have spent a lot of money in developing people, uh, right down at the, the lowest level of the organization up through the, the, the future CEO of the company is not a family member. But they, they look at them as a family member. And uh, they spend a lot of money and time and mentorship to develop them. They use outside sources to help that. Mm-hmm. And uh, and they're disciplined with, you know, some other things are disciplined with debt and things along those lines. It makes makes, makes it a little bit easier in that sense. Mm-hmm. But uh, very, uh, very mission-driven. Mm-hmm. It, so it sounds like there's a strong why there. There's a good sense of, of why we're doing this. Absolutely. What about communication? Part of your job is to have you know those clear lines of communications with an entrepreneur who's got a, a lot of glass plates moving at the same time. What have been your keys to communicating with entrepreneurs and gaining their trust through this process? I think the, probably the biggest is being transparent. And, and I, I joke with my business owners that they'll have an MBA in finance and M&A by the time they're done. And it's not to overwhelm them, but it's really to uh, make sure it's real transparent um, what's 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 going on through the process of pre-engagement? We do some things other firms don't do. We go you know, right down to the net proceeds analysis. We go through the working capital analysis, the purchase price allocation analysis. So we're you know it doesn't mean we don't have bumps in the road in the process there, and we reinforce that multiple times throughout the whole process. So a lot of clear communication, and we work in deal teams too. So it's not just me. So you know we typically have three or four people in every engagement. So they're they're developing relationships with my other key people, mm-hmm. uh, and many of them are doing re- the real hard work uh, along with the business owners. So it it, it is a good uh, process. Now we have uh, weekly check-ins with our clients. So you know typically that's Friday. So much of my tomorrow is with uh, our clients that are in the LOI process and just kind of keep them in the loop what's going on and where due diligence is or where the buyer universe is at that point. But communication, Dennis, is, is absolutely a key uh, to, to our business and your business too. When someone asks like, what an engagement looks like with, with a firm like ours, I think one of the best things you can do in the, in the first year of an engagement is learning to speak the same language. Because you live in a world that's filled with jargon, as do we. And, and each, each business, each family has their own language. The faster you get past the jargon and start to speak in the same vernacular, suddenly you're, it sets up everything else from there. It, it does. It absolutely does. You're right. Yeah. And you, you may have heard the line that meeting with a financial planner is, is often a combination of a visit to the dentist, marriage therapy, and high school calculus. So it's, it doesn't always sound great to come in and sit in our office, but you know, if you can get past that the, the, the squirminess, it, it gets a lot better. You know, and from, and from our, we just had a conversation with a um, family-owned business as eight outside shareholders and with a strong recommendation to work with a firm like yours. And you, you, your firm was actually the firm we recommended. But that said, they're afraid they're going to sell insurance. They're afraid you're going to sell them a product. Right. Trying to educate them on what an a, um, investment advisor is from a planning perspective versus just selling your product. One thing I would say to your profession, that needs to happen more. I know 
FINRA and SEC has all kinds of rules that you guys have to follow and test to differentiate yourself from each other. Mm-hmm. But the public doesn't understand that. And that excludes the business owners. And if you take your, you look at a, a, a typical business owner, they don't have a lot of time. They think they know everything. They're afraid to be sold something. And you're really not selling something. You're solving a need they don't even know they have sometimes. Right. That is a challenging thing. And I, I think that's why I've loved when we've been seated around the table, virtually or otherwise, with other professionals. I like that the client can kind of look and say, this is this is where I turn for this. This is where I turn for that. And there's just a, um, there can be a lot of clarity in that. So let's talk through the projecting things forward for your industry, for, for the kind of consulting work that you do. Now, you are a past chair of, of a National Mergers and Acquisitions Association. I think you said the theme of the next con- of next conference is future trends and then what's, what's going to be coming down the line. Tell us a little bit about what business owners, entrepreneurs can expect in the mergers and acquisition space from your financial perspective. Uh, we just had an economist speak uh, to our group last month, and we're, we believe it's going to be a bullish 2022 too. We're kind of concerned about how much volume is taking place in 2021 will be when any businesses be left that's independent. It's as crazy as that sounds, uh, how much demand we have right now. Uh, but we think it's going to be, you know, we're just with the um, liquidity still out there. It's $3 trillion of liquidity in private equity. The other twist with what's going on with private equity, they're exiting their businesses too. They're seeing this, this kind of bull market, so to speak, in business valuations and all this liquidity. And they're they're taking money off the table. Now they have to reinvest that. So we're seeing a continued ramping up through next year. Worries, of course, are around interest rates, the deficit, supply chain issues, uh, you know, inflation, those type of things could all damper that a little bit. You know, depending on what happens with uh, tax law changes, could damper dampen it a little bit as well. But uh, we beefed up. We just hired two two more people. We're looking for about four more. You know, we're, we're pretty optimistic on where we as a firm and we in my national alliance and the national association are pretty, pretty positive where things are going next year. What, what skill sets are you hiring for these days? Who, who's that, who's that ideal candidate that, that's coming in and being a value to your organization? One of the guys that just joined us is an ex uh, international commercial banker. And so, you know, that skill set of finance, but people skills and how to handle relationships is is certainly critical so the blend of people skills and financial skills uh are are needed um you know we have people behind the scenes that are more we call them underwriters but they're investment bankers that do a lot of the analytical work you know we need them on the team too so you know they're doing the the purchase price allocation appraisals and those types of things so it's a good blend you know i keep joking we got about half our team's ex-commercial lenders that i keep telling people there's life after commercial lending one of my guys tells other commercial bankers it's the same church of a different pew. Uh-huh. That's that's the general point. Not probably dissimilar to to your world, Dennis. And, you know, we have to do our licensing with you know doing business valuations or certifications, and then we have the uh, we have to get our Series seventy nine license, so we have to go through the SIE and sixty three and seven and all the things you do. So you know that skill base that's willing to, to make the effort and educate themselves. You know, with our commitment to support that, of course, too. You work with a lot of different industries. Each industry has its own unique risk. Each business has its unique risk. What is the unique risk to your business? Um, is it the drying up of that liquidity? Is it policy changes? What What have been the historical risks for your type of work? 
You know, it's interesting. Um, we have not faced so much. In 2007, 2008, we did pretty well. In fact, we got ranked seventh in the country by SNL. Wow. Doing wealth management firms uh, and trust company sales, mm-hmm. which is a, one of those bank ratings. So we had a good recession period. Uh, where I do see it from an industry perspective, being a national chair, is those that specialize almost 100% in a certain industry. Okay. So I'll use our firm as an example. We we had a concentration in the natural gas industry back when the natural gas industry boomed. Mm-hmm. When it bottomed out there into a, a little bit of their own world recession, we probably had 10 transactions going in that industry. That was too many. Mm-hmm. So we're careful in concentrations to some degree. I know some of my national peers that focused on hospitality, restaurants, Uh, bars, restaurants. We don't do bars, restaurants, and hotels. Uh, They really took a pounding uh, in 2020 and still still not recovering in 2021. Um, So those industries, that tends to be where you see those things. From a macro perspective, economics, it's rising interest rates, a recession, same things that will impact many other business owners too would impact us. A big, a big one would be um, from a private equity perspective. As you know, they use carried interest. Yes, it's capital gains tax treatment for them. If that law would change, that would have a significant impact on business valuations for private equity. For someone who is an audience listening, who is a business owner, who's kind of on the fence about whether or not. Uh, they should be starting to think about a transaction or their exit strategy. What would you advise them as their as their first step? Is there something they should do before they contact someone like yourself, or is it just have that first meaningful conversation? Where where would they start? I, I, I would say um, they should be feel welcome to contact someone like us. We we will do a typically we will do a kind of valuation on the company that will focus on company specific risk. We'll get into a little bit of the personal financial planning. We don't do that, but we're going to ask them the right questions so that we can get them to right. to you so that you can follow it up because it, it has to go together. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't charge for that initial analysis. You don't need a full 50-page business valuation book. We do those. But all you ever do when you get those, read the numbers. You really want to know what specific risk is behind that. And uh, especially with a long-term type plan, we, could, you know, we don't push people to sell. Uh, and really kind of uh, advise them, you know, here's maybe what you want to be thinking about. Here's might be the right time. And we dealt with the emotional part of selling the business. What are you going to do post-closing? Mm-hmm. Getting getting them to a uh, – uh, I know you work with Cheryl Null and Tom Garrity. Getting to them to somebody like Cheryl or, or Tom or John Damon Harrisburg, somebody like that is absolutely critical in helping them plan that out. And they're not paying us until the sale takes place. So – uh, you're really building a good action plan on a good outcome. And I recommend them listening to podcasts. I mean, I listen to a ton of podcasts. I refer them to some business podcasts. Um, and uh, there's some good books out there too. And if you're thinking about selling your business too. That, I wanted to get into content with you. And it, you're, you're right. I think one of the best roles that, that you can play or any other professional person, and this goes for business owners, retirees, pre-retirees, anyone on your professional team, should know when it's time to bring someone else onto your professional team. And and that's what we listen for is that say, listen, this isn't a, this is an attorney conversation. This is an accountant conversation. This is a Bob McCormick conversation and know when it, it it's time to, to add to your team. And that's a, that's a great value. And that, and, that, and that typically is our first step is getting the team together. If we got time to plan, getting the, getting the team together is our really first step after we do that initial, initial analysis. 
And in getting the team together, that's where some of my best content ideas have come from, the, the best books, the best podcasts. So what are some of your favorites? What are your sources that, that are your go-to uh, things to list? Let's start on podcasts. What do you listen to? There's a thing called Built to Sell mm-hmm. uh, podcast, John Warlow's podcast. Not always perfect. It's a little bit more designed for smaller businesses. Uh, but I certainly, uh, uh, certainly enjoy uh, those podcasts. I listen to your podcasts as well. And, uh, and and just just last one we were talking about you with your partner, I mean, it was a that that podcast is applicable if you're running a law firm or running an M and A firm or running any other professional service firm. I I don't know if you appreciate that uh, from from your perspective. Um, I certainly listen to a fair amount of economics type podcasts, and uh, sure. right now I'm listening to uh, Jim Collins's new book, uh, BE Two, uh, great book. You know, whether you're going to run your business for the next 20 years, you're going to run it for you know next six to 12 months. And a lot of value in, in what Jim Collins uh, puts out there and, and similar type things. I also listen to some, you know, non-business type books uh, and podcasts as well, too. Give me one indulgent category that, that if you if it's say, all right, I'm turning off the business stuff, what are you going to? Well, actually, it's uh, I hate to say this, it's it's a little political, but it's uh, it's a little bit around the um, all the president's attorneys. Oh, okay. It's uh, it's a uh, my son's in law school or just graduated from law school, so he put me onto it. But it's mm-hmm. yeah, you pick up a little things in that sense too. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and I appreciate the kind words on the podcast. I mean, I think that the best thing about the podcasting environment is if you find a voice that you like or someone who has a new book coming out or something like that. You know, you search them in the environment, and you could find 10, 15 different interviews that they've done as they're making the circuit. And depending on who the interviewer is, you can get some great perspectives from somebody that you might you know, have read their stuff and just hear it from in a different in a different way. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I forgot, I forgot to mention one one bit, one uh, M and A related one is um, it's called the Private Equity Fundcast, and it's they're based in Chicago. They're one guy's originally from Binghamton, New York. Uh, great guys. Uh, but they, they, they've done things like what is it, what is an LOI? What is the structured sale uh, for the business owner and also for other private equity and M&A firms? And uh, they're fun guys to listen to, too. Uh, so it's uh, it's a, and they'll do a book review or software review every year. And it's kind of an interesting, uh, interesting group out there as well. So the private equity fund cast. Excellent. And, and, and a kind of a dumb one out there is the Cigar Authority. They've actually talked about M&A in the cigar industry. Uh, on that one too, which is, it's, it's kind of, that's an indulgence one. <laughs> Very good. So God willing, the pace keeps up for you and things are, things are brisk, but should things slow down, what do you do in your spare time? What's a relaxing thing to do when, when transactions ebb a little bit? I, I think uh, a couple of things. One during COVID really got more focused on family mm-hmm. and having family dinners. And I missed an awful lot of them as a bank CEO that I should have never missed. And even in this business, and so I've really been trying to not miss family dinners in this business, even this busy time, if it means just going up to the den after dinner and working longer at night. Um, I'm a very active tennis player. I play USGA tennis, so, you know, to tennis two, three nights a week or uh, or weekends. And then we have a lake house up in northeastern PA. Try to spend, that's really family time up there as well. Excellent. We'll have to introduce you to, to Katie Brown, our resident tennis player here. Oh, so. we'd love to. <laughs> Excellent. 
Well, this has been great, Bob. We appreciate the um, the insight from a financial perspective into mergers and acquisitions. I think we're, as we all watch the news, we're aware of just uh, transactions. It just seems like that's been the story of 21, buying, selling, and it's happening even at the scale of, of mid-sized businesses, and your insights are, are much appreciated. If someone wanted to uh, get in touch with you, where can they find you and your firm? Uh, the best way to reach me is my office here in Lewisburg. It's 570-524-7253. Or my email is B as in boy McCormick, spelled M-C-C-O-R-M-A-C-K, at murphymccormick.com, all one word. And um, we're very, we, we've returned every phone call or every email every day. So that's been our policy. That was my policy in banking, and we continue it. Well, I know your your clients and, and the community appreciate the work that you're doing, uh, kind of approaching it the right way and, and helping people really make one of the most meaningful steps in their entrepreneurial careers. So, um, Bob, thanks for joining us today, and uh, we really appreciate you being on the Leading with Purpose podcast. I appreciate it, Dennis, and I appreciate your podcast as well, so keep them coming. Thank you. Morton Brown Family Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. More information is available at our website, www.mortonbrownfw.com.